What is up, freaks? This is Jigsaw from... Oh, what the fuck was that? It's all. You want to play a game? That's all I got. It's actually Marty Ben. Miami. Maybe we'll switch up the ad reads here. Bitcoin 2022 is in Miami April 6th to the 9th. Like you just heard, Matt and I will be doing a live show on the 7th in the open source tent or on the open source stage. Join us. We're going to be physically and verbally assaulting Vake. Um, it's going to be fun. It's just, we're not even going to talk Bitcoin. We're just going to mess with Bake. That's on the 7th. The 6th is Industry Day. We're going to get a whale pass and, and bump elbows with everybody in the industry. You can do that there. 7th and 8th are regular conference days. Bunch of people going to be talking, giving presentations, doing panels, making announcements. Big announcement week. Going to be live and in person for big announcements. Miami is going to be the place to be. And day four is a music festival and a comedy fest. Want to get cake thrown at you? Steve Aoki will be there. You just stay close to the the front of the stage and it'll throw a cake in your face. I don't know why you do that, but some people get off on it. Use the code TFTC to get ten percent off after visiting b.tc/conference. Get them while the getting's hot. Thirty-five thousand people are going to be there. A lot of people. B.tc slash conference. Use the code TFTC. 10% off. This trip is also brought to you by our good friends at Unchained Capital. Very well represented at the Empower Conference in Houston. Parker Lois, hardest working man in Bitcoin, was wheeling, dealing, telling people how to custody Bitcoin. Unchained helps you do that. If you're a business, an individual, a family office, you want to custody your Bitcoin, Unchained Capital, Excuse me, I burped. Has a two or three multi-sig setup. They call it their vault. You hold two keys. They hold one. It's a collaborative custody. You always have full control over your Bitcoin if you have your two keys. If you ever need Unchained to be the second in the two or three multi-sig quorum, they're there for you. They're here to help you get off zero and get holding your own keys. If you're a, a rich person out there, it's like, dang, I really like Bitcoin. I really want to realize the full benefits that the protocol provides me, but I'm scared. I'm going to hold all my Bitcoin on an exchange. Shame on you. That's a single point of failure. Hit up Unchained. Tell them TFTC sent you and you'll get $50 off their white glove concierge service that's going to take you from zero to having a multi-sig vault set up with a thousand cuck bucks worth of sats in it. They're going to send you hardware wallets. They're going to have video conference calls with you. They're going to get you comfortable. It's not as scary as it seems. It's not as hard as it seems. If I can hold my own keys, you can hold your own keys. Unchained wants you holding your own keys. Go to unchained.com. Figure out how to do so. It's important, freaks. This, this rip, this week's rip, was also brought to you by good friends at Brains. A really good time hanging out with the brains team in Houston this week. Edward Evenson. Dude likes the party. He's a bad influence. He's a bad influence. He's a bad man. You want bad man working on the products that you're... I'm not saying bad like 
evil and nefarious. I'm saying bad, like, damn, that dude's badass. I want these bad men working on your Bitcoin mining firmware. Organizing your mining pools, running your mining pools. Edward Evenson's a bad man. Works at Brains. Brains is his team behind Slush Pool. They're also a team behind Brains OS Plus firmware. If you have an ASIC that is compatible with Brains OS Plus firmware and you're not running it, you're leaving sats on the table. Don't leave sats on the table. It's for losers. Are you a loser? I didn't think so. Go to brains.com. And see if your ASIC is compatible with it. And if it is, download it. You don't want to be a loser. Do you? No, I didn't think so. Go to brains.com. Download the firmware. Check out everything else they have. Last but not least, is brought to you by our good friends at Hoddle Hoddle. Hoddle Hoddle is here to bring you a peer-to-peer exchange, a peer-to-peer lending platform, no KYC, no AML. They're staying true to the cypherpunk ethos of Bitcoin. They have their lending platform, lend.hodlhodl.com, allows you to put Bitcoin up in a two or three multi-sig quorum. You hold one key, your counterparty holds one key, hodlhodl holds the third key. You have no control of your Bitcoin, but you do have visibility into that escrow account, so you know that your sats aren't being rehypothecated. You have certainty that if you pay that loan back, you are going to get your sats back at the end of the day. As long as how to holler your counterparty signs the second of the necessary two or three signatures. Uh, you put your Bitcoin up as collateral, you get stable coin liquidity. You can go spend that as long as you're paying back the loan plus the interest. You're going to get your sats back at the end of the day. Lend.hodlhodl.com. No KYC, no AML. Hodlhodl is doing incredible things right now. They've been doing incredible things. They continue to do incredible things. This lending platform, again, it's it's a good way to get some liquidity without having to give up a bunch of information. It's a great way to get some yield on your stable coins. You're a stable coin guy, girl. You enter the other side of that marketplace. You lend out your stable coins. You get what you lent out plus interest. If they don't pay it back, you get the sats. It's better than the, uh, the stable coins in my mind. Lend.hodlhodl.com. Enjoy, freaks. Sticky. You've had a dynamic where money's become freer than free. If you talk about a Fed just gone nuts, all, all the central banks going nuts. So it's all acting like safe haven. I believe that in a world where central bankers are tripping over themselves to devalue their currency, Bitcoin wins. In the world of fiat currencies, Bitcoin is the victor. I mean, that's part of the bull case for Bitcoin. If you're not paying attention, you probably should be. Probably should be. Probably should be. Logic, um, I'm sorry for berating you the first time you reached out to me about Hive One. That's okay. Why was I wrong? And what did I say? I think that you were maybe not too excited about the fact that we put the rank of all the Bitcoin Twitter accounts in, in the ranked order, if I recall correctly. Yes. To me, back then, I'm putting myself in past Marty's shoes. I guess I just, yeah. I don't know. I don't, I don't like the, the Bitcoin is supposed to be this meritocratic open source. Anybody can come in. 
and bring good ideas. And I thought the ranking maybe could have been somewhat of like a, a, a dick measuring contest more mm-hmm. than like a quality contest. Yeah. And I can understand that sentiment. I mean, you're not the only person that, um, let's say, this didn't sit well with. Because there, there is some, something inherently, um, maybe, I know, it, it, it just rubs people the wrong way when you suddenly have a ranking, right? And um, I get that. But the, the difference between what we're trying to do and what traditionally happened with lists that we're associated with, right? So you have ranking of influencers and all of that bullshit, where you have a bunch of people make subjective choices and say, oh, okay, these are influential people, right? Um, while on the surface, it looks the same, what we're doing is fundamentally different. So we're not trying to be a subjective judge of you know, who's influential, who's the leader. We're trying to algorithmically find existing dynamics in a given group and just provide you with a metric to understand what's happening in that group. Um, so we're providing tooling. We're not, we're not being a judge of it. And I think that that's something that we have a lot of, of work to do in terms of conveying that better. Uh, because that sentiment that, that you had, um, I, I've actually encountered quite a bit. So I don't take it personally, don't worry. I, uh, I understand that this is, this is going to happen. So I'm just trying to take time to, to, and I'm glad that we're starting with that because this is an opportunity to address this and explain um, why, why we, we use that format, why there is a rank, why there is a list, because there is a good reason behind it, which I'm happy to go into. Um, so I don't know if that's, that's the direction you would like to take it to. Yeah, no, I'd say before we dive into mm-hmm. the why and how like, of the particular mechanics of Hive 1, but just like why Hive 1 in general, what drove you to, to build this product originally? Sure. Um, well, it's, uh, it can be a long story. It can be a short story. <laughs> so the, the reason I started working on this is that I was just curious. And before starting this company, I had, um, I had built this, uh, well, a completely different company, but um, what was similar is that I was interested in how groups of people work together in a spe- specific environment and how the type of this cooperation can affect, like how effectively they work together. So I, 10 years ago, I moved to Berlin and I wanted to be, to join the startup ecosystem, to be part of that, that community over there. And I hit the wall because it, I I was an outsider, I was moving into a new city and I thought it would be much easier. Turned out it was more difficult. And at the time there were plenty of other people moving to Berlin, trying to join the startup ecosystem. And it turns out it was actually a very common problem. So initially I just created a small event to uh, try to make it easier for people to get into a startup ecosystem. And that kind of like evolved into international franchise of events where I was designing a format of a decentralized event where we were replacing um, any um, event like a venue with software, mm-hmm. and my goal was to understand how a startup ecosystem works, as what kind of dynamics, what kind of different actors are in this group that enables this amazing innovation. That's somehow all of these companies and products and so on are coming out from these handful of cities that have these startup ecosystems. What's different about the way that people interact with each other? And that was really fascinating to me. I spent almost five years working on this company even though I hated organizing events. But what was fascinating to me was trying to learn how these dynamics work and how could I design a format 
that would enable people to interact even more effectively with each other. Or it would be even easier for outsiders to join these communities to become part of this, you know, like mechanism that creates all of this innovation. And when I finally sold, sold that company, I was frustrated with the aspect of organizing events. I, um, I was taking some time to think of what I want to do next. And at the time I started, started becoming interested in Bitcoin and the cryptocurrencies in general. And what was even more fascinating to me than the cryptocurrencies themselves was that I noticed the same thing I, was, I had seen in Berlin as in the community of people somehow coming together and collaborating in a different form than usually we see that um, to create some, some products and companies. I started seeing this on Twitter. I started seeing the same dynamics happening there. And this was really mind blowing to me. So initially, I just wanted to, like 10 years prior with Berlin, I just wanted to become insider myself in that community. And again, I kind of hit the wall. It was kind of difficult to, you know, to break in. And I started literally on a piece of paper, I started like um, thinking of like what kind of model I could design to find uh, sort of like keynotes in this network that if I connected to those people, that would be my shortcut to that community. And that one, th one thing led to another. I started like designing simple models and we turned them into, into a script with a friend of mine. It, you know, we, it spits, starts spitting some lists of people. I showed these lists of people to a handful of friends. They said, wow, this is very useful. So I kept iterating, kept iterating. And at some point it started getting so accurate that I thought like, okay, there might be something to this idea. And in order to test whether this is real, you know, whether, okay, maybe I'm seeing things or, or did we create something really useful? Um, we tried to run a test and back then we, we ranked what we thought was crypto Twitter and we published this as a, just a simple list on the crypto influencers IO. So we just bought a website. We did this completely anonymously. I, I tweeted about this and I went to sleep and I woke up the next day to like literally hundreds of people, you know, like tweeting about this or retweeting and saying, holy shit, this, this makes sense. Like makes sense. How did they do this? And when this happens, I realized that, okay, we have something real, right? So that's how... The, the company came to be like after, after this experience, I realized, okay, it's time to start another company. I raised some money. I, I built a team, we built a technology and, you know, like long story short, here we are. But what I learned in the process was that, um, we found a very effective way of understanding how communities form on Twitter and then understanding who are the leaders in those communities. So I did lots of fun, like first principle thinking about like how influence works, for example. And I wanted to understand, <coughs> I, I wanted to understand what is influence, how it works. And I realized that in order to understand it, really, I have to be able to quantify it. Mm -hmm. And the only definition that I come up with that would be quantifiable is that influence is a sharing collective attention of a group. Mm -hmm. And the way I like to explain this somehow is that, uh, sometimes, is that every group has some form of pecking order, right? Like um, I know that Bitcoiners don't like the word hierarchy necessarily, right? But there is a difference between top-down hierarchy, like in a corporation and the government, right? When it's enforced from the top and there is a hierarchy that emerges from the bottom, right? Um, and every group has a hierarchy um, and that can be a hierarchy enforced from the top, but it can be a, a hierarchy that just will emerge in a bar. You have a group of friends hanging out in the bar and there's always going to be someone in the group that where if he or she says, hey guys, let's go to another bar. Everyone will automatically stand up and, you know, start moving. And there are some other people in that group, if they say that, hey, let's go to another bar, they will say, yeah, maybe later, you know, like they will generally get ignored, right? And in theory, if you could put a chip in, a pl in, a, in the head of each one of these people and, and quantify how much attention 
each person receives from the rest of the group over the course of the night. I like, I mean, obviously I cannot prove it, but my theory is that you would be able to very accurately predict what would be that reaction if each one of them stands up and says, hey, let's go to another bar, if the rest of the group will follow or not. So what our model does and what you're seeing on the website is an equivalent of quantifying that attention flow just on Twitter, because while we cannot put chips in humans, in people's heads, while when you're interacting with others on Twitter, you're doing this through a pipe and there's a signal that flows through the pipe and we can observe that signal. And that's what we're doing. We're trying to quantify, we're trying to estimate um, how much attention you're receiving from a given community. And based on this, we can, we can predict wh where do you stand at that pecking order? And so you said when you came to the quote unquote crypto Twitter, it mm -hmm. remind you a lot of Berlin and what you saw in that scene. What are the particular traits that, that you notice and that you're now trying to quantify uh, via Hive One? Yeah. Well, the, the fundamental um, similarity is that a startup ecosystem has a more efficient cap capital allocation in some ways than like traditional forms of capital allocation in traditional economy, just because there is a very deep interconnectivity between certain groups, certain groups of people within that ecosystem, right? So you have the community aspect is really um, a reputation system that um, that is um, say used by this uh, ecosystem. Okay, that's a little bit of a word salad, but let's say you have Silicon Valley, right? The reason that Silicon Valley was so effective at allocating capital was that people knew each other, and because they knew each other, there was a reputation system, informal reputation system, that decreased the risk of that capital allocation. So it's sort of, it's a, it's a equivalent mechanism to how a bank will request a bunch of documents from you when they want to give you a loan, right? They want to decrease that risk. So they're using different mechanisms for that. They will also check your credit score and so on. That's a reputation system, right? That's a formalized reputation system, but there are also reputation systems that have not been formalized. And the, the, the most effective reputation system that is not formalized that I'm aware of is a community and by far. The problem with communities is that they only work on, like that they have limit in terms of like how large they can grow. Like right? Dunbar scale and stuff like exactly, that. Exactly, right? So uh, communities are extremely effective as long as they stay relatively small. And that's the reason these groups are also, um, so for example, Silicon Valley or the Berlin, you know, like startup community when I arrived, they're, they're, uh, they have, uh, they, well, or at least they, they had the reputation of being very open and welcoming, but really when you wanted to become a real insider and raise capital or, you know, get access to, uh, to some of the resources this community had, you actually had to work very hard and very long to build up your reputation, right? Because the function of that is to decrease risk of capital allocation, right? And the same thing has happening, has been happening on, on Twitter. Um, so in, in, in Bitcoin, community or Bitcoin Twitter, there hasn't been so much of venture capital activity, but you can see this with all this Ethereum, crypto, you know, DeFi and so on. They're, they're doing quite a bit of that, right? There's lots of scams and so on. And they're trying to use these community mechanisms these days to try to decrease that. Um, I feel like Bitcoiners are using this community, uh, community reputation system for other resource allocation primarily, but this is happening as well, right? The point is that this community is really a means to decrease, decrease risk when it comes to allocating resources, right? And the fact that this is happening these days, primarily on social media is, well, in some ways exciting because as I said, you cannot put a chip in someone's head, right? You cannot track that attention when it flows 
in a bar or in a conference room. But you can very precisely track these interactions when it, when it happens through social media. And while communities are super effective at being these re informal reputation systems, and in some ways very egalitarian because they're bottoms up, they're also limited by scale because, our, because they're limited by how much information can our brain process and store. But if we can move part of that computation, part of the information storage onto a chip, well, then suddenly this dynamic changes quite dramatically, right? Because suddenly we, perhaps we can use this super effective community mechanism um, in places where so far we had to use state or corporations mm -hmm. to do that reputation man management for us, right? Because we just didn't have any system that would be able to work on a scale of millions or, or billions of people. Yeah, you can go above Dunbar's number. Exactly, yeah. Um, don't worry about Sorry. the books. We got books falling in here, but that's... It's fascinating, right? And the egalitarian aspect of it is, again, like I mentioned in the beginning, it's like a meritocracy. People yeah. rise up. I mean, that's, I mean, you mentioned before we started recording LOP and like that, I just like remember back in the day uh, when I was first getting on Bitcoin Twitter, like it was like LOP, Beauty on, you know, Peter Todd, Luke Dasher, John Carvalho, Bitcoin Airlog was on Matt O'Dell, Nick Carter. Uh, Pierre and Bitstein, uh, like back in like 2014, 2015, those were like when I was just getting into Bitcoin Twitter, I was like, all right, these guys are, they know their shit. And I've, I've followed them ever since and still ho hold them in very high regard and credit them with uh, helping me come to an understanding of what Bitcoin is. And yeah, like I wouldn't, didn't find them in meat space. Mm -hmm. I was in Chicago at the time and in New York City, and they were spread all throughout the world. And, 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 I, don't know, the, and I started creating a list on yeah. Twitter, my own list, my Bitcoin Twitter list. I, I still have it and still use it to this day. But it was just like me self-filtering. And mm -hmm. so and that's just my my brain creating filters and pattern recognition, being like, all right, I'm going to throw these people up. And I've seen their body of work over many years and have the ability to trust their opinion on many things and not only trust it, but also evaluate it critically, understanding the perspective of their, um, their perspective um, and, and how that fits into my worldview. And so you're trying to mechanicalize this. Yeah. So what we're trying to do is to observe what, what, exactly what you did, but scale it up to every single person on that list. Mm -hmm. And we're trying to observe dynamics which tell us who do you pay attention to, right? So the fact that you pay attention to Jameson and to uh, Pierre and other people, right? That's a signal that we're using. And the more attention you yourself receive, then stronger the signal, right? And then we it just goes back forever. So uh, the first signal that we've been using is who follows you, obviously. So we will look at who follows you and who follows the people that follow you and who follows the people that follow them and so on forever, right? So what we arrive at in the end is effectively what you just described, right? You create, you curate a list for yourself because you want for yourself, you want to have a list of trusted voices and everyone else does that or most people do that too, right? And what we're trying to do is, all that we're trying to do is to collect that signal and combine this into a single list, and this turns this turns out to be very useful in the end, right? But it's also it, it's it's a bottoms up hierarchy because it's that whether you are high on that list or low on that list, you have no ability to influence this. Uh, you, the only way to influence this is by 
having other people make that choice for themselves that they want to listen to you, right? You have no, no, no way to coerce them to do that. And that's very different from how we traditionally think of hierarchies, right? Because in a corporation or in a government, you're in the top of the hierarchy and you control that hierarchy if you're in the top of the hierarchy. In a bottoms-up hierarchy like here, the only way you can stay at the top is if people at the bottom see value in what you're putting out. Yeah. So you mentioned follow, calculating who's following who and all that. What other metrics go into this? Because I'm very interested to hear how you guys are, are calculating everything on the back end because, mm-hmm. again, this drives me back to, I mean, obviously this is a podcast. I have a background in podcast advertising from my time at Barstool Sports. And like, there's one thing that's notorious about podcasting specifically when you're, especially when you're trying to monetize it, is that like podcast metrics are notoriously opaque and mm-hmm. inaccurate in in a lot of regards. And one thing we really stressed at Barstool and what I stress here now at TFTC was what you really have to do like to, to understand the impact of an ad campaign on a podcast. You can't look at the number of downloads. What you have to look at is the follow-up on social, who's yeah. engaging with each episode, maybe even the advertiser. And that's what you should hone in on. Don't care about the number of downloads per episode um, or, or month-on-month growth rate. Like, what is the social engagement? 100%. Yeah. Who's, who's listening? Not, not how many downloads there are, right? Like, yes. that's the metric you would like as a podcast host. Yes. We actually built a prototype of that metric uh, quite a long time ago. Mm-hmm. Um, and it worked really well. So the way we did this was that we took, we calculated um, uh, also a score for how influential each tweet was. So based on, because we already have information about like each person on Bitcoin Twitter, right? So then we would look at every single tweet and who interacted with the tweet, right? Like who replied to the tweet, who retweeted the tweet. And then we built, um, we scraped all the podcasts from, you know, all the major podcasting platforms and we exported URLs. And now we matched all these tweets um, with specific podcast episodes, right? So regardless whether someone shared your podcast episode with URL to Spotify or to, I don't know, like um, Apple Podcasts or SoundCloud, whatever else, we would ma- we would uh, merge all of this into a given episode and we calculated how influential each uh, podcast episode was in Bitcoin Twitter or Ethereum Twitter or whatever other Twitter. And eventually we, we'll, like, we, we stopped working on this because we needed to focus on some, some other things and we, we didn't want to get uh, distracted. But um, the experiment worked remarkably well, remarked remarkably well. So we're definitely going to go back to this. And I see this actually being... Eventually, um, this might be the way that you would price your ads, right? Because mm-hmm. if, as an advertiser, today the online online that's kind of like a tangent, but online online advertising works in a very weird way today. So the whole gigantic market is done through two forms of targeting. So one is targeting for intent. You go to Google, you type in shoes, you get Nike. But mo- like all social media platforms and podcasts will use targeting for um, audiences, right? So, okay, I want to show this ad to uh, to male between 20, 25, living in New York, making over $70,000, right? Or whatever other demographics that you you pick. And this just doesn't make sense in most cases, right? Like for for your podcast, for example, like your, most of your advertisers, I would imagine, would want to say, okay, Marty, like the more, let's say we want to speak to Bitcoiners, right? The more Bitcoiners listen to your podcast, the more we're willing to pay for it. That seems to me a ma- way 
way more reliable way to price, um, you know, how much they should actually pay for time on your podcast, right? Rather than, the, you know, what age or, you know, like income group or, a, or whatever other demographic demographic data today is being used for those things. Yeah. No, yeah, you can get very granular. Mm-hmm. So that gets to the point, like, from what I understand, the, the Hive One uh, meritocratic ranking product that you've built, it's a means to a much larger end. Yeah. Correct? I mean, Hive One has always been, in our minds, more like a demonstration of what's possible with the technology we're trying, we're working on. Um, these days, the way I would explain what Hive One is, is uh, it's a really good way to discover reputable accounts to follow. Um, and maybe soon we're going to be adding way more communities because now we're, we're, we're scaling our index. So you will also be able to discover interesting communities on Twitter. But really what we're working on is a new, um, a new way to index a social graph. So because we invented this technology that enables us to index social graph, to index these relationships and status of individuals in a group. Well, we can, with this, we can index social graph the way that Google indexed the web, right? It's, it's actually a very similar model in principle, but instead of looking at the links between websites, we're looking at attention transfers between individuals in a group, right? So what we're trying to do is to index the social graph like Google indexed the web and social graphs are everywhere, not only on Twitter, but also on, you know, obviously on all the other social media platforms, but also in podcasts, right? Who appeared on each podcast, guests and host as a social graph in academic papers, in uh, venture capital deals, in lists of conference speakers, um, and a whole bunch of other things. Like the, the, there are hundreds, if not thousands of different social graphs. And in theory, you can bring all of them together into a single index so that you could build search engines and social feeds and, well, essentialist identity systems. Like it, it really, um, it's an endless list of possibilities once we have that index that can, you know, anyone can query. Yeah. So how do you designing Hive One designed for like the edge cases and maybe when I would consider like low effort engagement mm-hmm. farming, right? Like the breaking <laughs> tweet, like how, yeah. how do you, like, cause people like ripping Bloomberg headlines, putting breaking in front of it and like knowing that that is not necessarily uh meritocratic, like putting ideas out there, but realizing how to hack people's dopamine yeah. receptors. Well, that's actually pretty straightforward because um, you can, so what, what we're interested in, and again, this is all just probabilistic estimation, right? So our algorithm is always improving. It's, it's never perfect, but we're trying to estimate what share of collective attention you hold in a given group and over time, right? So if someone goes viral with some tweet and then um, everyone f- forgets about this the next day, well, our algorithm is not going to pay too much attention to it, right? But if if there is someone like Adam Beck who has been receiving attention from Bitcoiners, from other influential Bitcoiners for a very long period of time, well, then like then this means that most likely he's very influential in that group, right? So uh, actually, the, this, these viral tweets that's fairly easy to account for, and what what even happens if someone has does does this repeatedly? Then, if you start looking at the, uh, well, we 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 often um, um, generate these visuals, data visualizations, right? And uh, attention will come from certain groups of accounts. So, 
very often when someone publishes these sens sensational tweets, um, those very influential accounts don't really pay too much attention to that. And you see that at the edges of that cluster, right? So those accounts that are fairly new, they're the ones that they get excited and that doesn't result in much of a difference in score, if at all. Yeah, it's fascinating. It's, uh, again, going back, it's weird being ranked. Yeah. I checked it before you came in here. It's so weird. Like, I, like I'm number seven on the Bitcoin list. Congratulations. <laughs> it's like, do I deserve to be number seven? That's like the question. I, I don't, I don't know. Well, like, there's a thing that th this is the most objective way how you can get, get an answer to this as, as possible, right? Because we, we're not deciding this. I'm not deciding this. I'm just telling you after crunching all of this data from tens of thousands of you know accounts on Twitter, that's who they pay attention to, right? Um, so good for you. It seems that what you're putting out there like uh, carries value to lots of people. So weird to me. It's so weird. And that, yeah. You can just hear like the, yeah. It, but it's, it's so how, again, like ranking all this, getting reputation, identity. How does this, I mean, we've talked about how it can change the scalability of, of groups above Dunbar's number, yeah. how it can help advertisers more granularly target and podcasters price their product if they continued on the advertising role like what, what else is this like does this help like, so so there is a lot of talk recently about um twitter and you know misinformation and all of that right and i'm uh, i'm squarely in in the in the um well i mean this uh, on the side of the debate where i believe that twitter should not um decide what's, you know, what should be allowed or shouldn't be allowed, right? Like, I believe that this is not the role of the platform. But at the same time, I do agree with um, the fact that there is an, a lot of like nonsense and bullshit that should be somehow filtered out from my feed, right? What's, what's possible with our technology is that you could just decide, okay, well, I have a bunch of communities that I trust and a bunch of communities I don't trust. And I can have now a very simple set of filters that um, on given topics, I want to hear from this group and on other topics, I want to hear from that group, right? So let's say, um, I mean, COVID was one of these like hot topics, right? Well, maybe I want to choose that. I want to only hear from a group of virologists, right? Or epidemiologists or whoever else, right? And as long as that, that group delivers quality to me, I'm going to continue paying attention to that group. And as soon as, um, I, I become suspe suspicious that maybe this is not the best quality information. Maybe I'll sw switch to a different cluster within that discipline, right? Because th the same thing happens like you have on crypto Twitter where you have all of these different cryptocurrencies and tribes and so on, right? Um, I know that Bitcoiners don't consider uh, themselves part of it, right? But let's say this, this section of, of Twitter is very interconnected. If you look at um, academic Twitter, uh, you will also see those clusters. And very often... Um, there is going to be a disagreement. There is going to be more than one cluster within a given discipline, right? Virologists, um, you will have two groups and they have very different viewpoints on COVID, for example. So instead of having uh, the platform decide, okay, what's, what, what opinion should be allowed or not allowed, right? You have a bunch of groups of experts and now as an individual, you can choose, okay, I don't want to hear from random people on this topic. I want to hear from experts, but now I see, oh, okay, there are two groups of experts. And they do disagree on these topics, right? So now I can understand it in a much more depth. I can still make up my own mind. I can make up my own decisions. I can filter out all the 
uh, people who are talking out of you know their ass on the topic they don't understand, but I can still make these decisions myself. Yeah, so you can have competing views. You can have like the the Malones of the world, the Peter McCulloughs of the world, and then uh, the Fauci's of the world and mm-hmm. his acolytes. Yeah, and, and see that there's they have different viewpoints, but they're somewhat subject experts and and you can decide for yourself. Yeah, and you can also see who pays attention to them, right? So which groups pay attention to them. And that's, uh, I think this is particularly helpful because we are not able to be experts on everything, right? Like um, if someone is talking about uh, particular physics or um, I don't know, like some biology or chemistry or, um, you know, COVID for that matter, right? Like I'm not able to um, really understand every argument, right? Because I don't have this depth of knowledge. But so what we do is that we relegate some part of that trust to some indicators of like how credible that person is. And for the last several hundreds of years, we've been using the primarily degrees for that, right? So this person got a debt degree from that university and on that basis, we're going to trust them more than that other person. And that's far from ideal, um, but we still need some, some proxy, right? For those topics that we simply don't have the expertise. So just... uh, jumping from that topic of, of COVID, right? Maybe you're not able to evaluate, to, to tell between two experts arguing between themselves, but you see that, okay, that group, um, that, that group of experts uh, is getting attention from lots of physicists and mathematicians and so on. And that group of experts might be getting lots of attention from journalists and from, um, I don't know, like, uh, you know, like different fields that are not really very STEM related. Mm-hmm. So your probabilistic estimation could be in that situation that, oh, okay, I probably want to, I want to probably pay more attention to that group that physicists and mathematicians and, you know, those people are, um, you know, um, considering them, let's say, more credible. And that's, of course, not perfect. There is no perfect solution here. But in my view, that's at least an alternative we should seriously consider to having a centralized arbiter of truth deciding, okay, this is allowed, this is not allowed. Yeah. I guess one problem you have to think about, too, is like the Galileo-Copernicus problem where... In retrospect, they were obviously very right, but the the crowd, the the popular opinion at the time, was very much against them. And how do you try to like? Well, that that happens every day in science. Actually, you have, um, you know, you have a bunch of old people that um, are dom- dominate given fields, and it takes. Well, they might not change their minds, and um, it's kind of like a old. Um, Old, old truth, or <laughs> I think Kuhn wrote about this that uh, uh, you know that the science changes because the old people die off, and then you know we can have new ideas yes. uh, percolate, right? But it's not that no one listens to these new ideas. It's just that the people who are really dominating those fields, they 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 they, they refuse to listen, and they have majority of the largest cluster. But there is usually a cluster, a small cluster emerging that's slowly building up, that um, entertains those new ideas, right? And that's the reason it's so important that we have um, space for those ideas that are not, let's say, considered um, the right ones by the dominant cluster. We have space for these small clusters to develop and to entertain those ideas because they, over time, some of them will be non- nonsensical and some of them will die off. But sometimes this new, new cluster that's split off, it will turn out to be right. And this idea will grow larger. Um, but it, 
again, with the technology we're building, you actually would have a mechanism to, uh, to notice when there was a group splitting off and forming a new set of ideas, right? And you can actually start paying attention to that group. And okay, sometimes you will say, well, this sounds like nonsense to me, but sometimes you will want to pay attention to this new set of ideas. And right now we don't have a mechanism to notice that. We on, like There is a huge delay. Um, and it's not only a problem in public discussion, but also it's a, it's a serious problem in science, like um, in terms of like how quickly we can progress and how quickly ideas percolate in science. Yeah, well, I, I, my mind's going straight to like trading fund fund management. There was a lot. I mean, when I worked in the in the fund world, like one of the big themes in like 2013, 2014 was trying to have these, um, I forget what they call them, but these thematic funds that were uh, quant funds, quant funds, but yeah. yeah, they were quant funds, but like they would try to like gauge, um, gauge uh what's the fucking word i'm looking for they try to gauge like, sentiment sentiment yeah. there we go so the problem with um and i spoke to some uh several of quant funds the quant funds um in the past when we started working on this and i was surprised that they're actually not doing too much with sentiment and the problem with um doing the sentiment analysis is that let's say you were trying to um, gauge the sentiment for bitcoin right and you did this on twitter now you're going to have a bunch of accounts that are expressing positive sentiment to, towards Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. And then you see, well, these are Bitcoiners, right? Of course, they're expressing positive sentiment towards Bitcoin. And then you're going to have a bunch of accounts that are expressing negative sentiment towards Bitcoin, like Ripple, you know, Ethereum, Peter Schiff. Uh, well, Goldbox, right? A, a bunch of those clusters. And now, well, they're unlikely to ever express positive sentiment the same, the same way as Bitcoiners are unlikely to ever express negative sentiment, right? This doesn't matter. But if you took all the tweets, this is this is this is what you would get as a as a baseline of that sentiment, right? Like you would you would get a lot of noise effectively. But if you could separate, or you could understand, okay, this is the Bitcoiner community, this is the Goldbug community, this is you know XRP, whatever else, right? Now suddenly you can organize these different communities, and you can understand, okay, well, um, actually this this fintech community or this community, these really matter in terms of a sentiment towards that asset. Um, so. What we're building, I believe, is actually going to play a large role in those models down the line. We're, we've been already having some conversations with some hedge funds about potentially using that, um, because you get um, you get understanding like this algorithmic understanding of very large groups of people. Something that again, this is no one no one has figured out how to do that yet. And with the technology we're building, it becomes actually relatively easy. Yeah, I mean, if you're able to visualize a cluster breaking off into a smaller cluster and then. I just imagine like the way quants think and they just see like mm -hmm. growth over a certain period of time. Like obviously attention's here, like, all right, let's allocate some money towards an idea that or exactly. an investment that this idea would flow capital toward. Yeah. It's all probabilistic estimations. Yeah. Um, so what does this do for society overall? Yeah. I mean, so it's hive one. Are we creating a hive mind? Kinda. So the the reason that um we called it hive one is that I wanted like I would hope that in the future, you're going to have thousands of hives. Um, and what I mean by this is that what we're really building is an algorithm that can index all of these different social graphs. And then we want to make this index available in a permissionless manner. Um, so the same way is imagine that Google, instead of building their index, index, they index all the web, but they build a walled garden around it and they build their own search engine and they built fantastic business, right? But imagine that instead of building their search engine, building a walled garden, they just made this index available to anyone so that you can query this index. You have to pay them a little bit, 
but you can query this index and you can build your search engines or you can build your maps or whatever else, right? We would have a completely different web full of innovation, full of different products. And now imagine what if not only they made it permissionless and open, but they also decentralized control over that index, right? So you would like that would become one of the in infrastructure layers of the internet itself, where suddenly everyone can build on top of that. They cannot be cut off from it and so on. And that's really what we're trying to do down the line. So Hive One, as you see today, would be just one of the applications built on top of that index. And others can build another Hive, another Hive, another Hive with slightly different functionality, but tapping into the same index that we that we do. Does it make yeah. sense or yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. What I'm trying to think of like at scale, like what is like the like what does your server cost look like? Mm. Like how much data? Tens of billions of dollars per year. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's what we're estimating it would cost to maintain that. Yeah. It's like yeah, how big if you don't mind me asking, like is the, the server burden right now for you guys? Oh, right now it's not not a lot. We're we're spending under ten thousand per month on, on the AWS, but um it's it's expanding rapidly since we're we we just started growing our index, so we spent the first three years. Um, on fundamental research, really, um, because we got we we had to solve some problems that have been out there for a very long time, and, and we managed to solve all of them. Um, so we kept it small intentionally, um, and now we got to the point where our model is fully generalizable. So we can we can use it to map any community on Twitter. And literally, several uh, well, less than a month ago, we figured out how to make it make it also run in unsupervised fashion, which means that now we can deploy a model in a given section of the Twitter graph. And it will find all the communities that are out there and also will be able to name them automatically. So uh, the way you see on, if you go to Hive One today, you will see Bitcoin, Tesla, Tesla. community, Ethereum, right? We gave them, we gave these names to those communities manually. But now our model can not only find those communities, but can also figure out, um, uh, figure out what should be the name of that community based on what words the people in that community use in their bios. Right, and this was the last piece that we needed to be able to uh, just run crawlers on Twitter, just like Google does on the web. And now we expect that the costs will explode quite quite rapidly <laughs> in terms of like how much the infrastructure costs. Well, it's crazy to think. What were some of those unsolvable problems that you guys fixed? Oh, um, well, s some of them are just um, like in uh, graph analysis, mm -hmm. um, so pure pure mathematics. Um, and the others were were just like okay how do we how do how do we put these things together right so um the the a really difficult piece is still for example um where does a community end right so this is this is an ongoing process how we're solving that because um as i explained before the way we're we're going to find this gr group of people and then we we're going to rank them it's like okay, who do you pay attention to and who who everyone else pays attention to. And there is going to be slight differences in terms of like who you would consider a Bitcoiner and who another Bitcoiner would consider a Bitcoiner and so on, right? So it's never one-to-one. -one. It's, it's um, um, uh, the technical term for this is that the community is non-discrete, non right? Mm -hmm. So that it, it's not a zero to one, the boundary is here, but it's rather zero between one, right? So it's a scale. It's amorphous in a way. Yeah. So what we're now trying to do is to find better ways to finding these, to painting these boundaries. And this is still not perfect. So at the moment, there is something called insider score on the website, which is, which is still in beta and it's, it's far from perfect. We're working on better ways of doing that, but um, being able to find communities and name them, give them boundaries. This is something no one has, has ever done before in such a way that it was accurate. Right. So that's, I would say that's the primary problem probably. Yeah.
Damn. It's uh crazy to see how far you guys have come because what did you reach out to me about two years ago yeah i mean we spent more than three years just uh, you know heads down um trying to prove that this is this is even possible because it seemed possible to me in theory but we didn't want to make too much noise before we actually were confident that okay we can we can really pull this off because there were many companies that raised lots of money before i mean you might have heard of cloud they raised i think 40 million dollars or something like that and they started indexing, you know, like the, the, the social media, but they never got their model to be accurate. You know, I, I didn't want to build another company like this. I wasn't interested in, in building a tool for marketers. I wanted to build something so accurate that you as a Bitcoiner, you would find it useful, right? Or someone in vegan community would find it useful on a daily basis to check their community, right? Because this is the ultimate test whether the model is accurate enough that it satisfies insiders in those groups, right? So how do you prove that it's accurate? Well, <laughs> the ultimate test is whether it's useful to you, right? Mm -hmm. um, and the reason we, we're confident is that we just have at this point um, around 10% of all the Bitcoiners on Twitter um, have used Hive1, right? Um, so that, that to me is quite, quite a good indicator. So how are, we, how are we using it? Oh, just signing up on our website, right? So that, that's what we track. We're trying to, instead of lo looking at I mean, we of course look at different metrics, but instead of looking at the total number of users, we're interested in what percentage of members of a given community, what person, what what percentage uses our, um, you know, like uses that, that 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 list, because we see our number one user is a member of a community, right? Because this is the edge case that you mentioned before, right? Like if we can satisfy. Um, uh, we often talk about uh, um, we are like internally. We we always think about Wiz. Uh, you probably know him from yeah. Twitter, right? He's this hardcore Bitcoiner who spends like he told me that. Oh yeah, I spend five to six hours every day on on Bitcoin Twitter, right? And every time I explain to my team who we're building for, I'm saying we're building for Wiz, right? We're building for this guy who's who's has been you know part of a community for ten years. He's still five to six hours every day using that. Like it has to be so accurate that it's useful even for him, right? Um, so that, that's how we're, that's how we're thinking about the accuracy. And the only way to do this is just, we're, there's a reason I'm here, right? Like there's a reason I'm, I'm in Austin, I'm hanging out with Bitcoiners. There's a reason, you know, I'm, I'm here on this show because we're building for this community. This is Bitcoin, Bitcoiners were the first community that embraced what we're building. So, um, and also I happen to be a Bitcoiner, so it makes it easier to build for myself. Um, but ultimately we're we're going to build processes to, as we're expanding, as we're indexing more and more communities, we want to be building relationships and also um, more automated ways to gauge how satisfied each community is with our ranking. Because ultimately we're not building for advertisers, we're not building for anyone else. We're building for those communities. And only as long as we serve those communities with something that's useful, that they, they find that it's making their community stronger, we're going to succeed. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that makes sense. It's fucking crazy. No, no as a, somebody who was inherently skeptic when it first came out of the box, it is strikingly accurate. Um, again, even though I don't think I should be number seven, everybody's <laughs> above and around me. I'm like, yeah, that makes sense that you guys are up here. Um, and uh, yeah, it's uh, so when you guys open this puppy up, like, are you, so are you obsoleting Hive One, the company? No, Great. so um, I mean, uh, how the company is going to be structured, we don't know yet. Uh, I mean, so so this, this is secondary, right? There's a team that's working on Hive One and there is another, uh, let's say, website-like um, product that we're thinking of that we um, we haven't 
uh, I talked about it yet. And um, we're for now keeping under wraps. That's also going to come out. And apart from that, we're going to open an API. And we're like, long term, the API is going to be the main product. And down the line, we're going to figure out how to give up control, how to decentralize control over over that API, right? Over that index and over who has access to it and what ter- what, what what terms. Um, but the company is going to still exist. It's just that once there is uh, this decentralized network that's operating, you know, like the, the index, there's going to be mul- multiple different participants in that network and will be one of that participants. Nice. And so when you open up the API, do you have any plans to integrate something like Lightning? Like Yeah. Yeah. Are allowed to talk about it? Or? Uh, I mean, I'm I'm allowed to talk about this. It's just that um, I don't want to make a fool out of myself, like speaking like before we have really designed this properly. But yes, I mean, so just high level, how would you think well, about it? At the high level, like the network has to make money, right? So if if there is an index, it's, it's as, as we talked about, it's going to be very expensive to maintain, like tens of billions of dollars per year potentially in terms of like indexing, computing, and so on. So, um when you're accessing that that index as a developer, you will have to pay for that access, right? And it seems natural to me to leverage Lightning for that um, or something that will come maybe even later, right? The, the beauty of the approach that we took is that we're first solving all those hard problems and we're waiting for this infrastructure to develop, right? And in five years, when or three, four or five years, whenever we're ready to finally start putting this together as a, you know, on decentralized rails, this infrastructure is going to develop even more, right? So that we'll be able to take advantage of all this innovation that has happened in the meantime. Yeah. It's crazy because that's something that's always inherently made sense to me yeah. is like API calls just pay like exactly five sets, 10 sets, whatever it may exactly. be. If you're yeah. making thousands, like it adds up at the end yeah. of the day. And you can have like two sides of that, right? Like, so you don't really have to build like a very um, complicated decentralization, you know, network, whatever. You just need to have like authentication that happens, you know, some kind of reputation system, some high, some kind of pricing system. And then you can have like thousands of different providers of like API, like APIs that um, serve, you know, you know, hundreds of thousands of customers. And you have this just small piece in the in between that, um, uh, that in, that this the intermediary between them, right? Is this what web 3.0 looks like? <laughs> <laughs> I have no idea. You know, like, um, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the the term for this would probably be smart contract, but I don't even I don't even know if this is the, the right uh, the right way to describe it. Well, it, it seems like the right way to build this type of infrastructure. Like I give you a set, you give me some data, yeah. and I can plug it into my product. Yeah, exactly. Right. So there's a reason I'm saying that. Um, I'm I'm trying not to talk too much about this, not because it's a secret or anything like this, just that we haven't really had time to really sit down and think through how exactly this is going to work. And I don't want yeah. to say something silly that, you know, later on I'll have to walk back. Yeah, no, the authentication part of it. That's something we think about here at TFTC as we're building out like this Lightning Network enabled paywall. Mm-hmm. If somebody pays that, like how, like say they're using a VPN or something, like how do, how can we be sure they can always access that content um, yeah. in the future. Like we don't want them to refresh the page and have to pay again. And there's definitely ways to solve this, but like at scale, when you're talking about API calls and having yeah. it come from all over the world. I'm sure like, there's going to be a lot of work on this infrastructure going on in the next few years. So I'm I'm very excited about, about this and we're paying attention, right? So there's lots of cool projects happening now um, that I think uh, it will take 
you know, maybe two or three years to mature. But once this is this is done, there's going to be lots of good, yeah. uh, good pieces to use. That's uh, it's crazy how fast this is all happening. Everybody's like, it's slow, it's slow. Like Bitcoin's like 13 years old, and look, it's it's only reached 800 billion dollar market cap. It's like the primitives of buzzword um, primitive. The, the primitives are strong right now. Mm -hmm. Like it's people don't realize how quickly this is changing. Yeah. Like, and you're starting at the social layer too. Like the social layer incepted you to create this crazy product that is going to allow people to untap a crazy amount of value and have much more efficient capital allocation at the end of the day. Yeah. I mean, you can even go a step further because, um, um, and this is maybe a little bit of a uh, like different topic, but if you think about what Bitcoin does fundamentally is breaking the monopoly of the state over money, right? But the state has more than one monopoly. It has also a monopoly on physical violence and has a monopoly on identity because we don't really have any truly decentralized identity system and no one has figured out how to build one yet. And if we have decentralized money, that's great, right? So two out of three, but we still have two. Um, and it seems unlikely to me like, uh, that, you know, the monopoly, monopoly on physical violence is going to go away. But what if we, we broke the monopoly on identity? What if we had decentralized identity systems where you are in full control of identity that you use, right? Like what identifiers you create, what identifiers you use, what reputations attached to these identifiers, right? You don't have to do KYCs anywhere and you can conduct, you can participate in any, any form of activity on daily basis, whether it's business or private, using identifiers that you control, right? And that what's preventing us from achieving this um, is that we still haven't figured out how to solve the this civil attack problem mm -hmm. in all of these essentially um, identity systems. So I wrote a, a blog post a while back where I proposed to formalize this problem as decentralized identity trilemma where in order to tr build a truly decentralized identity system, you would have to be able to combine three characteristics, right? So it has to be possible well, resistant, right? So you cannot create multiple accounts and manipulate the system do doing that. Um, it has to be privacy preserving so that you don't have to relinquish any other form of identifier in order to, to create a new one, right? To participate in the system. So you don't have to do KYC, for example. And it has to be self-sovereign so that you and only you decide, you know, uh, how many identifiers you create. And that's, uh, contradictory with the requirement for civil resistance, right? Because, okay, if you can create as many identifiers as you want, well, then how do you prevent this system from being manipulated? Mm -hmm. But if you inject here this quantified attention, which is the natural scarce resource, right? Because attention is really expression of like what computations you're running in your head. Well, attention at the end of the day is what time, right? Yeah. Time is scarce. Yes. So if you, if you have a metric for how much attention every identifier receives from other identifiers, well, then you have a source of scarcity in the system. And that's how you solve that fundamental problem in designing a decentralized identity system. So of course, in order to be able to use that for truly decentralized identity, we have to go through all of these steps where we are indexing all the social graph and then we're decentralizing control over what we've built. But once all of these steps happen, then suddenly you have a foundation for building a truly decentralized identity system. And then you can have decentralized money and decentralized identity. Can bots fake time and attention? Well, so this is a question I get quite a lot. Um, there is lots of bots on Twitter, right? But they're annoying. Super annoying. But do you follow any of them? No. Right? You don't pay you don't pay attention to them. But they might have lots of followers. 
So they, like, it's very easy to create a farm of bots with that follow each other, right? And if you run our algorithm within that cluster of those bots, some of them would have very high attention scores from other bots. But now if you look at the attention, the, at the attention score of that cluster, it would be zero because other clusters in the social graph are not paying not any attention to them, right? So it's, it's, it's trivial to filter out those bots, right? Because they, they need to be getting, like once you have the whole social graph, then you can have a global attention score. And if the given cluster is getting zero attention from the rest of the social graph, well, then you probably don't want to, don't want to bother with that one. Twitter, use Hive1 software and fucking implement it and get rid of your bot problem. It's fucking so annoying. It's only getting worse too these days. I mean, I, I, I'm, I'm really surprised because the, this problem is really to solve, I mean, with, with our with our technology, it would be just trivial. But even without it, it's 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 a fairly straightforward problem. So I'm really surprised that it hasn't been addressed like, yet. Like today, I had to tweet about it today, like right before you got in here. And now I'm beginning to think, like, aren't they just yeah. trying to annoy Bitcoin Twitter so much that we just leave because they don't want us there? It's like, <laughs> it's like, are you doing this on purpose to, to like politely ask us to leave? I don't know. And then people are losing money and... well. Look, someone could actually use our API and build a build a solution for specifically Bitcoin Bitcoin Twitter today. It's very easy. Uh, the way you do this is that you plug into our API, you plug into Twitter API, and you you um, look at the let's say the top one thousand Bitcoiners and which accounts reply to their tweets, and then you compare those accounts. If if any of those accounts has zero or next to zero attention score and has almost the same name and a profile picture and description that one of the accounts on the top top one thousand. Um, this account is auto blocked. Uh, is a block? Uh, yeah. So then you can have a list. You, you could build a simple application where anyone can automatically connect their Twitter account and automatically block accounts from this list. And now you can have a script that detects those bots automatically, feeds that into this application, and every Bitcoiner can simply use that application, and it will automatically block all the bots as as soon as they appear, and the problem will disappear. So anyone can build this today, right now. Like we, like I was even thinking about this, but we were just focused heads down on on shipping the next version of the model. So, um, stop, stop labeling stuff misinformation and kicking presidents off Twitter. Get rid of the bots first. That's my uh, that's my big qualm of the week here at TFTC. It's kind of well, it's gotten to a point too where like the bots, even though I've manually blocked them, which mm -hmm. takes up an insane amount of time. Yeah. But it just like annoys me so much that I block. They're still like I can see you know, I'll tweet something and I'll have like eight responses right away. So they're somehow still responding to my tweets. It could be bots that responding to that are responding to bots most likely, though. Know? Yeah. It's bots, man. Bots everywhere. You're creating good bots. Are you are you creating good bots? We we haven't created any bots yet, but uh we might down the line. How would you implement a bot? Well, you could think of so I I've been thinking that it would be useful to have accounts on Twitter that, for example, um, tweet every time there is an influential um, uh, podcast episode. So there is a podcast episode that has been shared by lots of Bitcoiners, right? And you mm -hmm. can follow this account, and every time there is a new ep podcast episode, you get you know this 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 bot says, "Hey, Marty released um, a new podcast episode, and over the last twenty four hours, Bitcoiners have been talking about this, right?" That could be a useful bot. Yeah. If you're somebody who's busy, like what podcast do I listen to? Yeah. Let me follow this bot. Exactly. Yeah. This will, this will give me the signal I need this week. Man. You're building something special. I'm sorry for 
having been so dismissive. Oh, no, no hard feelings. And actually, I, I was, um, it's part of the reason I really wanted to come onto your show because, uh, because you were skeptical. And I do appreciate those opportunities to talk to skeptics because, I mean, as you can see, there has been quite a lot of thinking that went into what we're doing, right? We're not doing this just to get attention or, you know. Um, cloud chase. I think at the beginning, I was like, this is just going to like yeah. incentivize cloud chasing. Yeah. So uh, having, you know, an opportunity to talk to skeptics, especially in public, is very useful to me because I can address those issues that, you know, you're not the only person that has felt this way, right? So, uh, yeah, thank you for the opportunity to doing that. No, yeah, thank you for coming on. I'm very excited for you um, and Hive One and humanity in general. Like if we can, I mean, you already have shipped the product and it continues to progress as it has for the last two years. Um, it seems like it'd be a, a very massive win for society overall in terms of filtering information in a much better fashion and not having to depend on the fact checkers of the world. If we, you're replacing fact checkers by allowing individuals to be their own information checker, essentially. Yeah, or, or you could even, so, I mean, eventually you will have other people building next level, like we'll build on top of what we, we have created. You can think of this more of an infra infrastructure, right? So you could have everyone become a fact checker, quote unquote, right? And make comments and there are already applications and browser extensions that are doing this to some extent. But if you have anonymous people, anonymous people commenting on given tweets or posts or whatever, that's not super useful. But you could have a similar mechanism that we developed in science where you have peer review of papers. You could have this done in public and apply to any kind of content that's becoming popular where everyone can chime in and you can see who they are you can see if they have maybe some bias because they're, you know, they're, they're popular with a group that hates this kind of idea in general. So maybe you want you, you as a user. Under index them. Yeah. Maybe you want to disregard that opinion a little bit or like keep that in mind that they're very biased. And you can see here someone from a completely different group or someone who in your mind might have a, you know, expertise. They are chiming in with a different opinion, right? So you might be able to filter through that. And we're not going to build those things. But there is so much opportunity to start building these alternative curation systems once you have this infrastructure, because it's like the same way as Bitcoin provide, provided digital scarcity, right? And that enables just explosion of innovation. We're doing, in a way, we're doing the same thing. It's just in a different context, right? We're providing this scarcity in terms of the social capital, right? You have scarcity of financial capital in digital form, and we're trying to do that for scarcity of social capital. Do you think this incentivizes better action at the end of the day or like better behavior? Oh, I do. Yeah. So the way we behave is driven to a large extent by how others will perceive us, right? So that's the reason people in general behave or you can expect people to behave much nicer in a small community, in a small village because they live there over a long period of time, right? Like how you behave will affect what people will think of you tomorrow and so on. Versus a place where, let's say a, a tourist spot where, you know, people are there for a week, right? And they know no one knows them there and they can do whatever and this will really not affect their, their reputation. If you go to Ibiza or some other spot where you have a whole bunch of, you know, kids just coming in, coming drunk and then leaving, 
right? Compare this with a village where you live your whole life and how different you, you would behave in those two circumstances, right? So that's the power of reputation in a community or lack thereof. So imagine that you could replicate that, that, that dynamic online, having more of a village-like environment, but at the same time, you could start, start over. So if you screwed up, you know, because you, you are in control of your identifiers, you can start over. You can create a new one and, okay, you have to now put in the work. You can start from, you have to start from scratch and building up your reputation, but you have this ability to start over. Well, I think this is important to bring up because I, I guess another, one of the biggest worries people would have is like how this has not become a social credit scoring system. Yeah. So the ability to start from scratch is yeah. probably necessary to avoid that pitfall. Yeah. I mean, um, this is, uh, like I think that you're referring to the Chinese credit score system. Right? That, or I'm just thinking inherently the uh, the Black Mirror episode. Yeah. Where we're like, click, like, I'm going to rate you. Like. So this is where this um, self-sovereignty comes into play, right? Like we talked about decentralized identity. It's, it's really critical that this system is self-sovereign so that you and only you are in control of um, whether you create a new identifier, how many of them you have, right? Um, it, as long as this uh, this is fulfilled, then this is very beneficial as long as and as soon as this criteria is taken away this is dystopic like what's happening in china that's on a technical level it's somewhat similar right but there is a fundamental difference that you have a top-down system which is not self-sovereign it's the opposite of self-sovereign right so this can be a tool for control or it can be a tool for freedom depending on whether it's top-down or bottoms up yeah so you're building the bottom up one because yeah. again like and it freaks people out, myself included. I was like, all right, we're getting all this information, you're indexing, you're scoring people. People have a score on the website. Like, I guess as humans yeah. transitioning into the digital age, we have to come to an acceptance of, all right, this data is out there. How do you want it to be used yeah. by the CCP or as an open protocol yeah. that anybody can tap into? The thing that this, so what's important to understand that this score is already there before we create this website. It exists. It just exists in your head and everyone else's head. And this this is a very expensive computation that's keep being done. And what we've done is that we, we um, were able to observe as this computation happens by catching the signal between different nodes and move that computation from a brain onto a chip. So where scaling computation already happens. This ranking is already there. We're not creating it. We're just taking it out and putting it in a different form. Yeah. Which then leads to better outcomes. Yeah. It's, speaking of our friend Bitstein, we, uh, in Houston last week at the, the Empower conference of the oil and gas and Mining industries got together. Bitstein had a tweet last week. It basically said difficulty, like proof of work was always there. Proof of work with the difficulty adjustment was always there. It just took Satoshi, like pulling it out of the ether and putting mm -hmm. it into a math problem with an adjustment that made it possible. Like mm -hmm. you know, it was technically always possible to figure out the hash cash shot to 56 cryptographic. It's math. So basically it's math that's there. It's like, this, these social interactions and this internal index is there on an individual level and you're trying to basically pull it all together with, yeah. with some math. Ah, oh, man. My check. It's been fucking awesome. Thank you, Marty. It was a pleasure. Thank you for coming. I'm bummed you're not going to be in Miami. Um, how can the freaks help out Hive1? How can they test it? Uh, yeah, that... Um 
test it. Tell us if there is anything that's wrong that you're seeing that is incorrect. Um, you can tweet at us. Our DMs are open. Um, yeah, uh, we would love to hear any feedback. That's always helpful. All right. I'm very excited to see where this goes. Thank you. Hive.one. We'll link to everything in the show notes. Peace and love, freaks. Okay. <laughs>